Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and I am joined in studio today by a very special guest, my son, 20 months old now, Alexander Grayson James. You want to say hi to him? You want to say anything? We got to get out of you. Want to say anything? Want to talk to him? Huh? No, no, can't push all those buttons. Well, we're down here uh, together. Alex is a little bit under the weather. Uh, but I wanted to tell you, um, thank you so much. We're still getting donations at GoFundMe.com slash hymns for the hymn project. Uh, you can find out more about it at RickLeeJames.com slash hymns. We've actually dropped our goal uh, quite a lot, and uh, we're hoping that it'll make it a little more uh, feasible for all of us to do that. So uh, thank you for all your support and for all your help. Uh, please continue to fund us if you can. We need. Oh, now you're going to talk. Okay. Yeah, play with that chord. That'll work. Uh, but anyway, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your help. I do have a couple of fundraising concerts coming up, both here in Ohio and in Indiana, right next, uh, the state next door. So uh, hopefully you can come be a part of that. Uh, today's episode of Voices in My Head is uh, episode number 121. It is uh, part six of a 10-part sermon series that I did while I was at a camp meeting in Summersville, West Virginia this year. I I hope you enjoy it, and uh, I'm not going to talk any further right now. I'm just going to go ahead and go. Oh, well, he was uh, wanting to play the shaker. Want to play that a little more? Shake, shake. Oh, just drop it in a box. Okay, you never know what's going to happen when the sun comes down into the studio for voices in my head. All right, well, without any further hesitation, unless Mr. Alex has any further words for us to say. You want to say anything else, Alex? Want to say anything else? No, not right now. All right. Well, with no further hesitation, then, we're going to go into uh, episode number 121, sermon number six, Questions from God. God is good. Tonight, we're going to continue looking at what we started looking at this morning with the teens. And I asked the teens a couple questions and, and had them keep some things in mind for tonight. I asked them to keep in mind who were the Gentiles and what does it mean to be perfect. And I didn't really give them an answer. So I was going to give them the answer tonight. I wanted them to kind of dwell upon that. But we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 tonight. I used to say turn in your Bibles, but now so many people have devices, you can turn on your Bibles. But, uh, you know, in, in a few minutes I'm going to ask you if you have it to go to Matthew 5 or it will also be on the screen. But we're going to look at the, the Sermon on the Mount tonight. This is a difficult portion of Scripture because we tend to take the hyperbole in it as literal and we tend to take the literal in it as hyperbole. So we're going to dive into Matthew's Sermon on the Mount in a moment, but just before we do, I think it might be helpful if I just briefly explain something out of the Gospel of John, which I think has some bearing on what we're going to be talking about. It has bearing on all of our life, as a matter of fact. I want to give us a reminder 
that the story of Jesus does not begin with the Gospels that we have in the Scriptures. The Bible tells us that God has been at work a long time. And the line of work that Jesus is in is God's ancient work of salvation. Jesus is God, so this means that Jesus is like God. If you ever wonder what God is like, God is like Jesus. This means that God has always been like Jesus. God will always be like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but we know it now. God has always been like Jesus. It's very important to keep that in mind. Jesus is what the Gospel of John calls the Word made flesh. The translation of that word, word, which sounds weird saying that together, but in English we translate it word. It's the word you've probably heard before if you've been around the church for much of any time at all. It's the word logos. Where we get the word logic, actually. Logos is a philosophical term for the rational principle that governs and develops the entire universe. It existed through ancient philosophies, and it's the thing that creates and develops the universe. Another way to explain it might be the great mind that governs and forms the universe. John takes that word that was so familiar with philosophers of the day, and he equates it to the mind of God, who God is. And this word, the logos, the word becomes flesh. This is who the Bible says Jesus is, the living word made man, dwelling with us. Jesus brings order to the universe, just like as we heard in the first night of God bringing order to creation and function to creation. Nothing works without Jesus. Without Jesus, everything is a mess. I truly believe that. I've, I can testify to it in my own life of when I have made moves without Jesus, and it's turned into a mess. So Jesus, the Word made flesh, is the essence of who God is. His mind, His reason, His fullness, born on earth as a man. He is fully God. He is fully man. We affirm this in the Christian faith. So everybody kind of has that, okay, you've got it. Jesus is like God because Jesus is God. There has never been a time in all history where Jesus was not like God. God and God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but we know it now. And Jesus helps us to reinterpret Scripture where even divine inspired words written by men, inspired by God, we got it just a little bit off. And Jesus, the living Word made flesh, the Word of God, comes in and teaches us how to look at God's Word because He is the living Word he is the final word. So on to the book of Matthew where we will find our question from God tonight. Even though Matthew was the second of the Gospels written that we have in our Bible, it's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew sets the story of Jesus in its biblical and historical context. Matthew wants to make sure that when we read his account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, that we see the connections with everything that has gone before this stuff just didn't happen one day. God has been working behind the scenes, planning for the day when His Word, when He would become flesh and dwell among us. Now, fulfilled is a word I want us to remember tonight. Say that with me. Fulfilled. Very good. That was very weak. Say it again. Fulfilled. Okay. 
Um, again and again in Matthew's Gospel, you'll see sentences that say, such and such happened that it might be fulfilled. Fulfilled means this, complete or completed. Fulfilled means it was completed. The prophets in the Old Testament proclaim that God is doing a work and God will continue doing His work. And in Jesus we see that, God's, that the work that God do, is doing is fulfilled and completed. Matthew tells the story in such a way that not only is everything God was doing in the past complete in Jesus, we ourselves, and in fact the entire universe, is complete in Jesus. Every day we wake up in the middle of something that is already going on. Something that has been going on for a very long time. Know this, God is still at work. God is still doing things in our world. And God is still doing works in our lives which are only complete, which are only fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew shows us that we humans are neither accidental characters in God's story, nor are we unimportant in God's story. To God, we are not accidents. To God, we are not unimportant. Now, we are not the center of the story. Make no mistake about it. God is the center of the story, but we are not accidental players in it, and we are not unimportant to God's grand story. So Matthew provides a narrative for us which helps us see all of God's creation and salvation is completed or fulfilled in Jesus. All the parts of our lives are completed or fulfilled, as Matthew says, in Jesus. Our work, our families, our friends, our memories, our relationships and our interactions with other people, our dreams are only fulfilled in Jesus, completed. Do we understand that tonight? Have I said fulfilled and completed enough time that it's just sticking there in your brain? Okay, good. Jesus himself says, do not think for a second that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. I have come to complete. So Jesus is not a diversion from the concerns of our world that we see in the news every day. Jesus is not a diversion from our heartaches and our heartbreaks. Jesus is not a diversion to help us through hard things. Jesus is the completion of those things. Jesus is the missing key to a life of wholeness. He is the fulfillment in life. He is the, as we might say it, the fulfillment of life. Because He fills life full. And He makes it hard you probably wanted to come in here and Jesus made my blues go away, everything's great. No, Jesus makes it harder. I didn't know troubles until I met Jesus. You know, before Jesus, you can kind of do whatever you want. You start following Jesus and he starts messing everything up. He goes around and starts calling people. He takes people like tax collectors and people who were traitors to their country or making lots of money and getting fat and wealthy and rich. He says, follow me, leave it all behind. And What? You mean I have to live now following you, not knowing where my next meal is going to come from? Give up all my wealth? Well, that's hard. Well, do you want to be a disciple? Okay, I guess so. The thing is, 
we need to be willing to take Jesus at his word and allow him to form our lives and to complete them. He will make our lives more challenging, but he will make it a better challenge than the challenge we had before. Life is just hard any way you look at it. And it's hard with Jesus too, but it's a better kind of difficult. It's a more filled, full, difficult, fulfilled. The thing is, if we believe that Jesus is the completion of our lives, the fulfillment, then we need to do things like Jesus did them. Not like our country says to do them, not like our friend says to do them, like Jesus says to do them. We need to be willing to take Jesus, the living word, at his word. We need to let Jesus do the things he does in us. We need to be willing to, to go out and, and be invisible spiritual Christians, <laughs> not be invisible spiritual Christians, because there's nothing private about our Christianity. The Christian faith is a communal faith. Jesus made it that way from the start. Christianity is intensely personal, but it is in no way private in any way. Christianity is not fulfilled or completed without Jesus, and it's not fulfilled or completed without others. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian that's off by themselves doing their own thing. Without the community of faith, without the traditions of the church, we are not technically Christian. We need each other in the body of Christ. That's not my rule. That's the way Jesus set it up. All right, so moving back into the text we started looking at this morning with the teens, Matthew chapter 5, from the Sermon on the Mount. I told the teens this morning that the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of rules that Christians have to conform to. The Sermon on the Mount is a teaching about what Christianity looks like when the people of God live like Jesus, with Jesus, together. It's impossible to live out the Sermon on the Mount alone, which is why you need a good church. By yourself, your life as a Christian will not look like the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount requires community. The Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom of God. Just as the Constitution of the United States is the model for how people are to live together in this country, the Sermon on the Mount is the model that the people of God are to organize themselves around. When we pray together, God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we mean it. We don't mean sit around and wait for one day when we get to heaven. We mean right now. As Jesus says, the kingdom of God is among you. It is already and it is not yet. It is here and it is there. It is both. So hear the word of the Lord tonight together from Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 43. I'm just going to read a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. It has been challenging me for quite some time. I, I, I hope it will challenge all of us tonight. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's biblical, by the way. Did you know that? doesn't mean it's right. Jesus shows us a different way. But I say to you, even though you have heard you shall love your enemies or love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And here's the question from God tonight. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's question to us tonight is, what reward do you have if you only love those who love you? Don't even the Gentiles do that. And so I asked that question this morning about who are the Gentiles. So why does Jesus say Gentiles? Or some of your Bibles actually might translate it a different way. The Gentiles were, 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 were hill people. And I loved how Dan Meek said it this morning when we were discussing. He said they were kind of the hillbillies. Okay, The Gentiles were kind of looked at as the white trash people of their society of that day. A Gentile is a person who is not a part of the Jewish religion. Now let me ask you a question. What religion was Jesus? He was Jewish through and through. He died a Jewish man. So his religion was not the Gentile religion. From the Jewish perspective, Gentiles were seen as pagans. And some of your translations will call that pagans who didn't know the true God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is alluding to the common association that Gentiles are pagans, godless people. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? In another place in the same sermon, Jesus noted, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. In both cases, the NIV simply translates it, the Gentiles as pagans. So, now, that's a little bit of a problem because I don't think most of us in here are Jewish by our heritage, okay? That makes us Gentiles, all right? And that's a little bit of a problem, but, but here's the thing. Jesus makes all things new. This makes us Gentiles by nationality, but not necessarily by faith. If we are Christians, we are not pagans any longer. We get to share in the same inheritance that Jesus has provided. So for our purposes, when you read or hear the word Gentile in the Sermon on the Mount, just think, people who are not followers of God yet. That yet is very important. Every person on this planet is a potential disciple. Every person on this planet, every Gentile, every pagan is a potential Christian. So they're not followers of God Yet, And I think that's how Jesus sees and saw people. So let's hear it again, the, the context sort of in its, con the question sort of in its context. If you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Jesus kind of reframes the question. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of God. What reward do you have if you only love people who love you? Isn't that the kind of thing people who don't know the Father do? Be perfect like your Father is perfect. So God's question to us tonight, it revolves around two very hard teachings. Love your enemies and pray for them. And, and this is actually pray good things for them, okay? Pray the blessings for them, that they would come to know God, that they would be blessed by God. It's not pray down fire and brimstone and hell upon them. It's pray for them. And also... Be perfect. That's not too much to ask, is it? Just go out and be perfect, everybody. 
I asked the teens this morning to give us definitions, and we got all kinds of definitions about what perfect meant. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit. And I want to share a conversation with you. Now, this isn't just one conversation I've had with Jesus, but it's over the years and many conversations I continually have with Jesus and am still having with Jesus because I want to go another way than what Jesus calls me to when he asks me to do things like be perfect. So I'll say something to Jesus like this. What on earth? Are you serious, Jesus? You're kidding, right? How are we supposed to love our enemies? Didn't you see what they did? I mean, God, some of us lived through 9-11. God, nearly 3,000 people from all over the world died in attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Never forget is our mantra. God, some of us have been hurt and betrayed by people, and you expect us to love them? I mean, they have really, really hurt us. Are you serious, Jesus? God, love our enemies and pray for them. They shot a civilian airline out of the sky. Are you serious, Jesus? And as I listen to the Lord, I start hearing hard words and sometimes very stern words back. Yes, I am serious. This is how my kingdom will come into the world. If you love your enemies, if you pray for those who persecute you. He says to me things like, Rick, this is what discipleship looks like. If you want to be properly formed, then you need to conform to this teaching. This is what people who follow me look like. And so I'll say something back, Jesus, because I argue with Jesus sometimes. If I love my enemies... If I don't fight them back with the same intensity that they are coming at me with, do you know what will happen? And it's like Jesus gives me a, I have a pretty good idea. When I did it, they killed me. But I'm only asking you to do the same thing I did. I'm not asking you to do anything I, I didn't do myself. Look, do you want to be a Christian or not? And I'll say, Jesus, I don't know about this. And Jesus will say something like, it's okay, Rick. You don't have to love your enemies. You don't have to pray for those who persecute you. You don't have to be one of my followers. All I'm saying is if you want to be an obedient disciple, you're going to have to choose a better way. I call my followers to something a lot harder than vengeance and justice. I call my followers to respond with love and mercy. Jesus, are you serious? Yes. And that's where it gets a little stern sometimes. I died living this out. I died to show you how serious I am. I was not kidding. No one took my life from me. I willingly laid it down. I loved my enemies to the end, and I came back from the grave still loving my enemies. Because as a Christian, Rick, you don't have a right to enemies. You don't get to have them. Look, child, I'm only asking you to be perfect. Is that too much to ask? So is anybody else uncomfortable yet? I get very uncomfortable with Jesus sometimes. 
Anyone else think Jesus is asking too much to be perfect like him? Well, what does Jesus mean when he says perfect? Does he expect me to be flawless? To never ever make a mistake? To be exemplary in everything that I say and do? Well, you remember a word that I used earlier tonight? What was that word? I kept saying it over and over. Fulfilled. Very good. Two of you were listening. One of them was my mom. Very good. Fulfilled. If you remember what I said before about what it means for something to be fulfilled and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God is doing, what is another word for fulfilled? Complete. Whole. To be made into a whole person. Holiness is wholeness with God. It's something He does for us. It's something that He fulfills and completes in us and continues to complete in us. And every day continues to do His sanctifying work for the believer that will submit unto Him and allow His work to be done. That word fulfill, complete, whole, holiness, they are all part and parcel of the same thing together. To be completed, to be fulfilled in the Lord. Jesus uses the word perfect in the book of Matthew. It's the Greek word teleos. Teleos means complete in all of its parts. It doesn't mean perfect like you're just in, you know, you'll never ever make a mistake or have a foible or a problem again in your life. It means to be complete in your part. It means to be full grown, to become of full age, to be mature. It has to do with having a completeness of Christian character. When Jesus tells us to be perfect as the Father is perfect, he's saying be complete, be mature, be grown up in your faith, be whole, be calm, content, wise, and unafraid. Be a disciple. That's really what we mean by holiness in the Nazarene church. It's when we surrender ourselves to the point that God can really make us a disciple. That we, like the tax collector, can leave it all behind. Say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. See, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what wholeness looks like in Jesus. It's a picture of what we call holiness, wholeness. See how similar those words are? Wait, I thought being a holiness person meant we don't watch bad movies, cuss, or drink alcohol. Those things may be a part of holiness, but they're not a part of holiness Jesus talks about in this passage. Jesus tells us that holiness is about doing really hard things. And it certainly may be about avoiding those other things, but it calls you to step up to a whole lot more, like loving our enemies. Praying for people when they persecute us, that's a whole lot harder than avoiding a bad movie, i got to tell you. Jesus tells us that lusting after a woman who isn't your spouse is the same as committing adultery with her. That's not what the world says, but that's what Jesus says. And that's a hard teaching. Jesus tells us we need to take marriages seriously. Jesus tells us when we hate someone, it's as serious in God's eyes as murder. 
It's hard stuff. But Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the final word, and Jesus is what God is doing in this world. The Sermon on the Mount, you see why we can't do this alone? We need God and we need each other to be the people that the Sermon on the Mount describes. The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of holiness. It's a picture of completion. It's a picture of perfection. And what the world looks like when God's people live like God expects them to live. It's a picture of people who are like Jesus. People who are calm, who are content, who are wise, and who are unafraid. The Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the kingdom of God. This is how we order our lives. It's where we lay down our rights, not where we demand them. One flaw I see in our society is this inability to change. I know several people who are homosexuals. Some of them are in my family, and I love them dearly. I have wonderful conversations with them, and we talk about faith and we discuss different things. We come down in different places, but one thing I always come to in the conversation with them is I don't care if you're gay, straight, black, white, yellow, green, male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. God calls everyone to be changed, God calls everyone to be completed. In him and to be whole in him. God calls his people to lay down their rights and not to demand more. He calls his people to be calm, content, wise, and unafraid. There is a culture of fear that Christians need to step away from. You need to step away sometimes from the news, you need to step away from all the things that tell you you need to be scared of them. And you need to be frightened of them. And you need to be afraid of missiles. And you need to be afraid. So we've got to have weapons. We've got to have more and more. And Jesus says, This might get you killed, but don't be afraid. For I have overcome the world. Step away from the culture of fear. Jesus says, do not fear. Every time an agent of God comes in Scripture, an angel, and says, something to someone, they always have to preface it by, don't be afraid. Stop fearing. There is no fear in God. Adam and Eve, we talked about the first night, they were afraid. They were hiding. Jesus says, come out of hiding. You have nothing to fear. And until you start living like you're unafraid, the world isn't going to see you as any different than the rest of the world. It's a hard teaching. Loving our enemies, however is only one evidence of holiness and completeness in our lives. But that's a big step. Think about one more thing tonight. I don't mean to just hit on that part of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a whole lot in it. But somebody said something to me that made a lot of sense one time. Enemies are actually prisoners, according to Scripture. 2 Timothy 2 says... And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone. An apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. And they may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive, held captive by him to do his will. 
think Scripture is trying to get us to think of our enemies in the way that Christ does. Paul says in 2 Timothy that we are to be patient, correcting them gently, because they are not enemies, they are captives of the devil. In World War II, when the American soldiers liberated Jewish prison camps that the Nazis had established, did they go in and start killing all the prisoners? No, they set them free. How dumb would it be to go into a prison where people were oppressed and said, I'm here to rescue you. (laughs) No, I'm here to free you. I'm here to free you from the works of the devil, and that's why Jesus came. We don't shoot the prisoners, and that's what our enemies are. There are a lot of Christians and non-Christians alike who are slaves to the enemy. Some Christians are slaves to the enemy. You realize that? They're slaves to fear. They're slaves to things that they shouldn't be slaves to because they haven't taken that further step of allowing God to make them whole, to work out this this sanctification word that we talk about in the Nazarene church. Do you know who Malchus is? You ever heard of a guy named Malchus in Scripture? Malchus was the servant of the Jewish high priest Caiaphas who got his ear cut off by Peter when they came to seize Jesus. You remember this story? And Jesus rebukes Peter and says, Peter, put away your sword. Do you ever wonder why the Malchuses of the world are not listening to us? When we talk to them about Jesus? Could it be because we, like Peter, are busy chopping off their ears? It's hard to hear when you don't have an ear. But when Jesus, the great healer, comes in, he can even mend those relationships where we've already chopped off their ears. I believe that. We have to humble ourselves. We have to seek forgiveness sometimes from those people to earn the right to be heard. But Jesus is in the business of healing. Another way to say this maybe is there is a lot of incomplete There are a lot of incomplete Christians because they see sanctification maybe as an experience and a set of rules to be followed instead of a life to be lived out of completion in God, of rules to be followed is not the way to look at it. It's a way of life ordered by Jesus where he leads, following in his footsteps. So how do we react to people? How do we react to the Malchuses of the world who come to seize us? Do we pull out our sword and chop off their ear? If you do that, they're never going to listen to you. But if you become an agent of healing, which is very difficult, God can use you. If forgiveness is for you, then forgiveness is for everybody. If wholeness, fulfillment, completion is for you, then wholeness, fulfillment, Completion is for everybody. We believe that. If forgiveness isn't possible in every situation, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is a fairy tale. We might as well just go home and do something else. That is a hard teaching, but it's true. If forgiveness is not possible, it's not easy. But if forgiveness is not possible in every situation, The gospel of Jesus Christ is a fairy tale. 
sin turns people into enemies. God turns enemies into brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian perfection is about becoming a whole person. Part of that process is becoming mature enough to forgive people who have hurt you terribly. We do it because Jesus did it first. He still does it. And he calls us to do it. Jesus also calls us to ask forgiveness that we may be whole. Did you know that Jesus calls even sanctified people to repent? People who have had that experience before with God of wholeness. He wants us to continually come back. He wants us to continually be the people of God to be fulfilled and be whole. So here's tonight's question from God again. If you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be completed. Be whole. Be made new. Allow your mind to be transformed that God would bring holiness into your life. Now, just one other quick thing. I, I know I've gone on long enough, and I'm going to make this fast. A friend of mine, I've, I've mentioned it before, Brian Zond, he's a, a brilliant author. He, he's a really great writer. He said something the other day that just stuck with me. He said, a non-contemplative elder is just an old person. One of our problems in the church is we have too many old people and not enough elders. So I'm challenging the older folks. We need elders. In the church, we don't need the crotchety, ungodly griping of old people. We need the contemplative, godly wisdom of elders. Older folks, do you want to see young people in your church change the world? Strive to be an elder and not an old person. Young people, you do not know everything. You don't have the wisdom of an elder yet, okay? It's not your fault. You just aren't old enough yet. You haven't lived enough yet, okay? You need the elders. We need each other. Do you want to see the old people in your church change young people? <laughs> Start listening to them. Start listening to the stories they tell. I don't mean the gripey, old, crotchety old people. I mean the godly, contemplative wisdom of the elders. There is a difference. And we need some of our old people to become elders. And we need young people that will listen to those elders and grow up to become elders themselves. But we have too many selfish young people and we have too many selfish old people who aren't interested in wisdom nearly as much as they are in the latest thing or the thing they want. The Sermon on the Mount can help us with this. I truly believe that. Dive into it. Let God transform you. Be formed by Him. Well, tonight, I, I've gone on long enough. But I hope you're understanding. Jesus wants to fulfill His Word, His work in us. Jesus is God's Word made flesh. Jesus is what God has to say. And if we want to be like Jesus, we've got to be like Jesus. We can't just say we follow Him and then do everything else just like the world. We have to follow Jesus, even in the hard stuff. Will you stand with me tonight? I welcome you once again to the table this evening. 
This is the way that Jesus tended to call people. He called them to the table. He got in trouble. He even got killed for his table fellowship and the company he kept. I question Jesus' judgment sometimes. I think, Jesus, I wouldn't have called that person, but I'm not Jesus, and he did. And he says, you come to the table. I don't care where you came from. I don't care where your background is. I want you to be whole. I want you to be made new. I want you to be complete. I want you to have that second work of grace. I want you to have the third and the fourth and the fifth. I want you to have it a thousand times in your life. As, as Dr. Greathouse, one of my old professors, and maybe some of your professors too through the years said, it's the one big yes that gives away to a thousand other yeses. As we come tonight, as I welcome you to the table, I welcome you to come and be complete in Jesus Christ. I welcome you to come and be made whole. I welcome the Christian. I welcome the non-Christian. That's what Jesus does. To come, we're going to take the bread, and as we take it, we're going to dip it in the cup. The bread is his body. The cup is his blood. And as we take it into ourselves, we are saying, Jesus, I accept you into me. Every part of it. And I don't want just a little bit. I want to be filled full. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be complete. I want to be whole in you. And as you come to receive tonight, I'd love it if you just stayed and prayed a while. Just stayed and let God do his work. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he thanked God for it. And he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this as a memorial of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after supper and said, This is the new covenant of my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this as a memorial of me. So take this, all of you, and eat it. Jesus says, This is my body given for you. Take this, all of you, as you dip it in. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant, an everlasting covenant shed for you and for all men for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And our liturgy will be on the screen. This is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It is to be made ready for those who love him and who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here a very long time. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, not because it is I who invite you. It is our Lord. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Won't you come as we sing this song?
listening to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience. So if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.